All right, so my dad said that the next group comes in at noon, and it is currently 10.34, so we've got 90 minutes of good stuff. I got I to gotta give Wally, I'm, I'm sure he's watching, I got to make sure I do the, the time joke too. All right, so we're going to go ahead and we're actually going to play a little game this morning because church is all about having fun, right? So there's a trend that's going around on social media lately on different social media sites, including Reddit. Um, and this trend is called Explain a Film Plot Badly. Um, this involves people giving summaries of movies where they leave out important details. And the goal is to try to throw off the reader or the listener as to what movie is being described. But the fun behind this is actually for the reader trying to determine, okay, what, what movie is it? And they, they often are groaners like dad joke or they're quite humorous. So I, I'm going to give you guys some examples. So the first one um, that, that I'm going to test you with is a group spends nine hours returning jewelry. And this describes the Lord of the Rings film. Yes. The next one, hopefully nobody's offended by this one. I'll probably laugh. Um, how about this one? Everyone tries the ice bucket challenge. Titanic. Titanic. Jack Rose. Um, here's another one. Farm boy reunites with his father who wants him to take on the family business. Sean. Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. So you're probably thinking, okay, Andrew, why, why are we doing this? I give you all of these examples to kind of introduce our concept, one of the concepts we're going to talk about today. Let's see if you can identify this movie. An old man, a nerdy scientist, a jock, a rich guy, a family man, and a violent foster kid try to take away an old man's rock collection. It is not the Goonies. Nope. This one is the Avengers movie series. So what's fascinating about the Avengers series is that these are not your stereotypical superheroes, right? They're not the Batman and the Superman. Um, as I described, it's a ragtag team that's made up of Bruce Banner, who's a brilliant scientist, Tony, Haw Tony Stark, not Tony Hawk, Tony Stark. That would be a sweet movie if Tony Hawk was a superhero. Um, Tony Stark, who's an arrogant billionaire playboy. Thor, a handsome jock with a nine-pack. Steve Rogers, a World War II soldier who spent nearly a century frozen in ice, and a number of other characters. Early on in this movie, these characters can't see past their own differences and almost come to blows several times. They differ on their backgrounds, their superpowers, the century that they were born in, their race, their gender, their socioeconomic status, and even their morals and their ethics. But by the end of the first movie, they have come together and they have endeared themselves to a common goal. You see, not only do these individual heroes have that common goal, but they have something else in common. They realized that they were truly alone and that they needed belonging. Dr. Bruce Banner's tests turned him into the Hulk, which made him, when he was angry, would turn him into this, this powerful beast, and he alienated himself from his friends and his family. Tony Stark's parents had been killed when he was a child, and so he built a shell literally and figuratively around himself in order to protect himself from getting hurt again. 
Thor had been exiled from his homeworld, the Black Widow had escaped from the organization that had enslaved her, and everyone that Steve Rogers had known had grown old and died without him in the 80 years that he was trapped under the ice. This new group, the Avengers, was all that they had. It became their new family and their new community. So this concept of belonging is ingrained in our culture. In the 1985 film, The Breakfast Club, it actually has a similar plot to The Avengers when you think about it, right? The trailer from 1985 explains that this group is made up of the brain, the beauty, the jock, the rebel, and a recluse who become a part of each other's lives after spending a day in detention. They abandon the isolation of their respected social groups for the intimacy of these new friendships. So consider this concept. A group that's made up of different social classes, ages, races, lands of origin, educational histories, and backgrounds. At first glance, this is a group that wouldn't get along, that, that doesn't have anything in common. But isn't it amazing that the group I just described is the church? Most of us have very little in common other than the revelation of Christ as the head of his church and the task at hand of bringing the kingdom of heaven to the communities that we live in. So before we get started, I want to give you a framework of where we're going today. We're going to start with the concept of who belongs in the church. Then we'll look at how can we possibly include everyone. And we'll finish with what happens when we allow everyone to belong. But before that, I'd like us to pray together. God, thank you for today. I thank you for everyone who is here because you brought them here today for a reason. I pray we would lean into what it is that your spirit has to say. I pray that as we look at some passages that we are all familiar with, you would give us fresh revelation to what you have for Walker Harbor in the coming season. In your name we pray, amen. Can you throw that picture up there? So several years ago, this photo was taken of a man playing a violin in a Washington, D.C. subway station, and it was part of a news story. The news reporter was conducting a piece on individuals in Washington, D.C. who perform music or entertain for acts of money, which is known as busking. This particular gentleman played in the same spot for 45 minutes, and during this 45 minutes, he played a total of six individual pieces that were composed by Johann Sebastian Bach. This particular performance took place during the evening rush hour, which means that thousands and thousands of people walked past this gentleman as he played. Only a handful of the commuters actually stopped for a few seconds. One individual, however, stopped rooted in spot, and that, that was a three-year-old boy who was traveling with his mother. He wanted to sit and listen. He was entranced by the rising and the falling of the beautiful notes that this man played. But his mother kept trying to yank him away because she was afraid that if he stood there too long, he would draw attention to himself and get the wrong type of attention from the wrong type of person. During the 45-minute set that this gentleman played his violin, only a total of six people stopped to listen to the music, and they only stayed for a short time. 20 individuals dropped a few bucks into the man's violin case, which at the end of 45 minutes added up to a total of $32. When the final song concluded, the man scooped, stooped down, scooped up the bills and coins, and shoved them in his coat pocket before putting his violin away and moving on. No one clapped, and no one 
even realized that he was done playing. Nobody noticed or cared to notice this man in the subway station. He was invisible and ignored, America's version of an outcast. Little did the passersby realize it, however, that this man was a renowned violinist around the world named Joshua Bell. Bell, Bell travels the world, and he first performed as part of the St. Louis Symphony in Carnegie Hall at age 17. His other achievements include going on to perform with the St. Paul, Minnesota Chamber of Orchestra, collaborating with film composer Hans Zimmer for a film, and performing the music for a song sung by actress Scarlett Johansson. That's two Scarlett Johansson references in a single sermon. <laughs> he is currently on tour with the Elbe Philharmonie Orchestra in Hamburg, Germany, and when I checked on Wednesday, the price of his tickets for that con upcoming concert are $260 a piece. One of the world's preeminent violinists, ignored by thousands simply because they perceived him as someone who didn't belong. Little did they know that they were getting a free concert that they would otherwise be spending $300 on, or that the instrument that he's performing on in the Washington, D.C. subway was a Stradivarius violin which was constructed in the year 1713 and is worth $3.5 million. But yet he didn't belong. But don't we do this in American churches every Sunday? Sure, we long for our churches to grow and for the huddled and teeming masses to come sweeping in through the doors of our chapels. We pray for the salvation of the sinners, the least of these, the tax collectors, the Samaritan women at the wells, the women caught in adultery, at least until they actually show up. We have an attitude of, you are welcome here as long as I don't have to acknowledge you and your sin or your differences. This was a problem that plagued the early church as well. Initially, the church was made up of Jews. Being a Christian wasn't really a thing yet. The Jews still weren't too keen on the Gentiles with their pagan backgrounds and their unclean ways of life, but there was an increasing number of Gentiles who believed in the message of Jesus and accepted his sacrifice on the cross. Next slide. Next one after that. Sorry. So in Acts 15, we find a group of Jewish believers who are gathering to discuss how to incorporate these new Gentile believers into the church and make them acceptable to interact with. Of course, many of these in attendance were Pharisees, which Sarah and Wally have kind of talked about the past few weeks. They were very legalistic in nature, and they believed that the best way to worship God is to follow the letter of the law. The question at hand, should Gentile believers be circumcised, as was prescribed by God to Abraham in the establishment of the first covenant? In response to the argument that the Gentile believers should be circumcised or else excluded from the church, this is what Peter had to say from the Passion Translation. God, who knows the hearts of every person, confirmed that I was chosen to preach the good news of the gospel to the non-Jewish nations when he gave them the Holy Spirit, just like he has given the Spirit to us. So now, not one thing separates us as Jews and Gentiles. For when they believe, he makes their hearts pure. So why on earth would you now limit God's grace by placing a yoke of religious duties on the shoulders of the believers that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? 
Don't you believe that we are introduced to eternal life through the grace of our Lord Jesus, the same grace that has brought these people new life? So Peter here is arguing that the Old Testament practice of circumcision was a symbol of one's commitment to the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. He goes on to explain that no one, including the Jews, had been able to keep the law, which is why the system of ritual sacrifice had been introduced in the first place. Paul agrees with what Peter has to say in his letter to the Hebrews. The old system of living under the law presented us with only a faint shadow, a crude outline of the reality of wonderful blessings to come. Even with its steady stream of sacrifices offered year after year, there was still nothing that could make our hearts perfect before God. For if animal sacrifices could once and for all eliminate sin, they would have ceased to be offered and the worshipers would have a clean conscience. Instead, once was not enough. So by the repetitive sacrifices, year after year, the worshipers were constantly reminded of their sins with their hearts still impure. For what power does the blood of bulls and goats have to remove sin's guilt? So by being the sacrifice that removes sin, Christ abolishes animal sacrifices and replaces that entire system with the new covenant. Paul is reminding the Hebrew people the traditionally-minded Jews who are now believers in Christ, that the law that was given to Moses and its corresponding sacrifices were never a perfect system that provided full cleansing. Thus, the act of circumcision that the elders and the apostles are arguing about in the passage we looked at before, Acts 15, was itself flawed from the beginning. Listen, Peter is calling to his new brothers in Christ. The Spirit was given to everyone, the Gentiles and the Jews alike, there isn't a Jewish Holy Spirit and a Gentile Holy Spirit. There's one Holy Spirit that empowers us and one Jesus Christ whose blood was poured out to save the whole world. Next slide. So how do we include everyone? Right? We now know Jews and Gentiles, everybody is invited. In our society today, everyone is welcome. So then the question is, how do we include everyone? What does a collective, unified church actually look like? Believe it or not, right, Jesus is not coming back for us as individuals. He's coming back to us as the bride of Christ, his church. It's not a me and Jesus, it's a we and Jesus. Luke and Paul often wrote about what the church was supposed to look like as a new community in Christ. We've all read and heard these passages before. Perhaps the most famous words about the role of the church is found in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The early church did four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They gathered together in fellowship. They shared meals, including the Eucharist. And they prayed together 
and for each other. They didn't focus on putting on a grand Christmas spe uh, spectacle with 20 performances in the season. They didn't focus on having the largest and craziest youth group. They didn't focus on pers pursuing the largest number of members with the fullest coffers from weekly tithes and offerings. They focused on teaching, fellowship, sharing meals, and prayer, and God added those things to them. They also made sure that all members were taken care of by selling their positions and giving their money to the poor. They recognized that in the spirit of Paul's metaphor for the body parts, which Wally referenced a few weeks ago, that it, when it is good with all of the body parts, it's good with the entire body. And likewise, when one body part is miserable or in pain, the whole body is miserable and in, in pain. They also recognized that their treasure was not in physical things, which moths and rust destroyed, but rather that they were accumulating treasure in heaven. Being the church and making sure that everyone feels welcome boils down to one word, hospitality. So Romans 12, 13 says, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. So that word comes directly from Scripture. So right there, Paul is explicitly telling us as the church how to live as the church. We need to practice hospitality. But we should never isolate a single Scripture, right? We need to zoom out and see, okay, what is the scriptural context? What, what's going on in the verses before and after that? So here's what we find. Romans 12, 9 through 17. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. So if you have your NIV Bible, the section title for this set of verses is called Love in Action. But what are the thesis for these verses? How do you show love? You show hospitality. By showing hospitality to all, you are demonstrating a true expression of love. Hospitality leads to everything else. Sharing with the needy, loving sincerely, being devoted to others, blessing those who curse you, living at harmony with others, doing what is right toward everyone. So those of you who know me well know that everything I talk about somehow has to come back to Disney and Disney World. So when I think about someone uh, who does hospitality well, it's the Walt Disney Company, specifically at their theme parks and resort hotels. Every person who visits one of their theme parks or stays at one of the dozen resort hotels on property is considered to be a VIP. As soon as you set foot on property, you are treated as though you are a literal Disney prince or princess by each of their 75,000 cast members. 
This is because Disney considers itself to be a hospitality or a service-oriented company. One whose goal is to make every guest happy, so they go out of their way to ensure that guests feel truly served and honored so that they're happy and satisfied with their vacation experience. This experience of true hospitality is so great that it is one of the reasons why guests flock from all over the world to visit and why they continue to come back year after year. Next slide. So for example, right, you might have a cast member, which is a Disney employee, this is actually one of my old students from North Carolina, who's going to go out of their way in order to engage with a family. She might never see this boy again, but she's taking the time to make this a magical experience for this little boy. So in their book, Be Our Guest, Disney wrote a book about how, do, how does the Walt Disney Company um, show hospitality. And so the author, Theodore Kinney, explains that at Disney, exceeding guests' expectation is the standard call of duty. If you study the Disney theme parks, you can see how that works on a myriad occasion every day. It shows up in the willingness of a restaurant hostess to not only provide directions when you are lost, but to leave her post to guide you to your destination. It appears at the end of some late night shopping when the cashier takes the time to find out who you are and where you are staying, and then recommends the free boat ride back to your hotel and offers a map to the dock. In Disney Institute programs, facilitators are not surprised as they listen to their guests tell stories like these each morning. That's the cast's job, is their pithy response. You see, it doesn't surprise Disney executives that guests are blown away by the extreme hospitality that cast members show. Extreme hospitality is the standard, the minimum expectation. It's how they love their guests well. So if Disney is doing that, how much more should the church be extending that same hospitality? But here's the deal. Extreme hospitality that Disney offers doesn't work unless all 75,000 individual cast members, from the resort desk managers to the mousekeepers that clean the rooms, from the cast working at the quick service restaurants to the cast members driving the Jungle Cruise boats, buy into that idea of extreme hospitality. Everyone has to commit themselves to that. Acts 4.32 demonstrates this well for us as the church. All of the believers were in one heart and mind. So if we look at what heart and mind mean here, the translation for the word heart is the Greek word cardia, which means one's entire mental and moral activity, both rational and emotional elements. The use of mind is probably better translated as the word soul, which is suke in Greek. It's where we get the word psychology from. It means the immaterial part of man, one's own self, from which one perceives, reflects, feels, and desires, one's seat of purpose, or one's desire. You see, much like how Disney cast members band together and as a result are globally known as being the best at showing hospitality, the members of the early church gave up their own selves and desires in order to focus on what was good for the whole and others' perspectives, feelings, and desires. In other words, they were experts at showing hospitality. 
This is something that Walker Harbor does very, very well at. When my family and I arrived from North Carolina 16 months ago, we were immediately welcomed. When I broke my leg over a year ago, several of you reached out, sent me cards, and even drove way down to Middleville to bring us meals and keep me company. And you as a body do this so well in our greater community. You serve at community Halloween parties, Easter egg hunts, you provide for local schools, and you give up a week of your summer evenings in tick-infested school courtyards, ripping out weeds to make sure the community feels love. And for that, I commend you. And what happens because the disciples and today's church shows this extreme hospitality? Next slide, please. Acts 2.41, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Acts 2.47, and that day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Acts 4.4, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. When we are united under one purpose under Jesus Christ and we extend hospitality, miraculous things can happen. We begin to see life flow on our broken earth and creation being restored like God had originally intended it to be. They were united in one heart and mind. They were there together. Sometimes I wonder if the reason why we don't still see a lot of the same miracles we saw in the early church is because we as an American church and a global church are not united. So when we break bread together in community, whether it's over a grilled piece of meat or the symbolic Eucharist, We're living out of one of the original intentions of the early church, which was demonstrating communion with God that was first enacted between God and the Israelites in the wilderness of the Exodus. Next slide, please. In their book, The True Story of the Whole World, Michael W. Goheen and Craig G. Bartholomew explain that the ratification ceremony over the law and the blood of the covenant ends with a meal between God and the leadership of Israel on the mountain. Here, communion between God and the people, so central to the covenant, is wonderfully enacted. The elders see God, and they eat and drink together with him. Here is a picture of God dwelling with his people. So when we gather together as a church and we share a meal, it is representative of God dwelling with us and among us. This is why Jesus' Last Supper was so important and symbolic. So when we live in extreme hospitality, we're living in fellowship with one another. Many translations use the Bible, in the Bible use the word fellowship, but perhaps a better translation for this word would be living a common life with the Christian family. We don't live this way in America. Too many of, for too many of us, it smells of communism. In fact, there's an entire American mythology that rears up in our souls when we hear about living the common life these myths of rugged individualism, of the American dream, of FDR's four freedoms. In America, we're incredibly possessive. We buy into the myths of keeping up with the Joneses and worshiping at the feet of Black Friday and Amazon Prime Day. But our friend, N.T. Wright, has something to say about this when he describes how the early church lived as a single family. When you live together under one roof, you don't see this chair and this table, this bottle of milk, or this loaf of bread as mine rather than yours. 
The breadwinners don't see the money that they bring in as theirs rather than belonging to the entire household. Rather, in the ancient world, members of a family all working in the same trade or business together so that you might have three generations working alongside each other, trusting each other, sharing a common purse out of which everyone got what they needed. The idea of the early church sharing all that they had to ensure no one was in need paralleled the, year, or the idea of the year of Jubilee that was set out in Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 through 11. Every seven years, a year of Jubilee was announced to the Hebrew people, where all debts were canceled. God called his people not to be tight-fisted, but to reflect God's provision to the Hebrews to ensure that there would never be any poor amongst themselves as they settled in the Promised Land. So much like the remission of debt in the year of Jubilee, Jesus' death on the cross remitted the debt of sin. Thus, the church in Acts desired to live in the new covenant, much like the Hebrew people lived in the old covenant, with Jesus resurrected after his death on the cross, and the people's sins were forgiven forever. The next logical step in fulfilling this new covenant, which God had intended from the beginning at creation, was to ensure that all people were taken care of and that there was no lack in the community. The church sprang up as a ragtag group of believers, like the Avengers, who were defying the law against a large empire who took the best food and the best people for its own consumption. They relied upon each other for its survival, not only for this new fledgling religion and way of life, but also for their very lives. And yet they saw bigger and practiced unconditional, sacrificial, extreme hospitality as a result of Jesus' final words in his great commission to spread the good news to the ends of the earth. The church didn't do this all for themselves as an end, but rather to ensure that they were well-equipped as possible to witness to the ends of the earth. Perhaps N.T. Wright says it best when he explains the day of Pentecost and the birth of the church. What we are witnessing in this passage about Pentecost is the beginning of the Christian theme, which we call salvation. It isn't simply about going to heaven, though of course it includes that promise, not only of heaven after death, but beyond that, of resurrection into God's new creation. No wonder 3,000 people signed up that very day. Let's pray. Father God, help us to live this day to the full, being true to you in every way. Jesus, help us to give ourselves away to others, being kind to everyone we meet. Spirit, help us to love the lost, proclaiming Christ in all we do and say. Amen.